Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again back inside the Now Appalachia podcast program distributed and carried all throughout the country, all throughout Appalachia and all throughout the world by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers from the Appalachian region and how the region influences and impacts their works. And I'm so excited to have a returning author with us on the program today. He has been uh, one of our favorite authors to have on the program. We've had him on uh, several times over the years since we started doing these uh, back in 2017. And he's back with a brand new book. It is called Those We Thought We Knew. Our guest is author David Joy. This book is about a pair of violent attacks that reveal the racist history of a North Carolina town. And David is back to talk with us uh, about this. He is uh, without question, and this is not without hyperbole, one of our generation's great writers, and the work he is doing and writing about Appalachia is terrific, and this book is is no exception. He is also the author of When These Mountains Burn, which was winner of the 2020 Dashiell Hamnet Award, The Line That Held Us, which was the winner of the 2018 Saiba Book Prize, and he's also the author of The Weight of This World and Where All the Light Tends to Go, which was an Edgar finalist for Best First Novel, and he currently lives in Tuckasegee, North Carolina. And it is my pleasure to welcome uh, David back to the program to talk us about talk to us about this fantastic new book. So, David, welcome back to Now Appalachia. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, my my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you uh, talking about this book. This is one of those books that uh, when I saw it pop up on the to be published radar about uh, a year ago, I circled it and I said, "Oh yes, this is going to be great. We've got to have David on uh, to talk about it." And so much. Uh, uh, to get to with this, but I wanted to ask you first about uh, who you dedicated the book to, because I feel like that offers some some insight and explanation in terms of why you decided to write this book about this particular topic. But you dedicated this to Marie, whose spirit burns as fiercely bright as anyone's ever born of this place. So, so who is she, and why did you decide to dedicate this novel to her? So uh, Marie Cochran is a visual artist. Uh, from from the mountains in North Georgia, uh, and uh, she's a long been a longtime friend of mine. Uh, some people might know her. She she heads what became known as the Afrolatian Artist Project, uh, which was uh, something where that was kind of trying to group visual artists uh, within the region who were people of color. Uh, and elevate those voices. But yeah, Marie's been a friend of mine for a really long time. Um, and part of the reason that the book was dedicated to her was that uh, some, I don't think that the book could have existed without her. Uh, and, and so specifically with the character of Toya, uh, you know, who's one of the main characters in this novel. Um, when I first started writing her, you know, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I didn't have a way to ground her to place in the way that I wanted. Uh, you know, I think one of the essential elements to my work is that it is very, very 
deeply rooted to place. And um, Marie and I were walking around Western Carolina University's campus, uh, and she led me to the top of this hill and showed me this plaque. And this plaque told the history of a church and a cemetery that had been there uh, that was removed. Um, and, and when she showed me that, I suddenly had a way to ground Toya uh, to Jackson County in a way that I couldn't have uh, without that history. And so just all of those things working together, um, you know, it, it just became important to me uh, to recognize that. Very good. And one of the things, if our listeners are new to your work or they haven't read any of your work for a while, something that um, is really a stylistic device of yours that is terrific is your opening lines are always so powerful in terms of not only pulling the reader in, but also kind of illuminating what is to come. And you talked about uh, Toya Gardner, who is one of your main protagonists in the story. Um, and we kind of get into what she's up to and 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 why she has come back uh, uh, to, to this town to visit her grandmother uh, in North Carolina. And it ties in directly to the opening sentence of your book, which says, the graves took all night to dig. Um, yeah. When I read that sentence, I thought, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. what's going on here <laughs> what's happening with these graves and and there's because there's always something uh so impactful about your opening line because it pulls readers in but, but uh illuminates more about what's to come so those graves that you mentioned in the first line of the first chapter what are those and and how does uh, toya gardner's story kind of fit into that opening line yes yeah, so toya is kind of a young 20 something artist uh, who is in graduate school. She's working on her graduate thesis, uh, and she's returned. She grew up in Atlanta. She's returned to her ancestral home uh, in the North Carolina mountains to, to try and, you know, learn about where her family came from uh, and, and the history of this place. And so she's, she's come into Jackson County, which is the, the place where her mother had been raised, and she spent the summer living with her grandmother, kind of, uh, you know, just completely, uh, you know, surrounding herself with this place and this history. And one of the pieces of history that she discovers is is that plaque that I mentioned earlier that Marie Cochran showed me. Uh, and this plaque explains the story of this church. And it says, you know, in in uh 1892, 11 formerly enslaved people started started the Mount Zion, uh, you know, AME church. And then it says on such and such date, uh, you know, the church and the cemetery that was there moved down the road uh, to make room for a dormitory. Uh, and of course, they they didn't move. Uh, no, no one, uh, you know, chooses to to. Uh, dig up their dead and, and take them off the mountain. Uh, it, it was very much something that was, that was kind of forced upon them. Uh, but when Toya encounters this history, uh, it's something that she feels like needs to be brought to light. Uh, and, and so the way that this story starts is, is kind of this graffiti esque, um, you know, art installation where she goes to the, to the place where this cemetery was, she digs a set of graves and, and she spells out a word uh, there to draw attention to this history. Um, 
and and you know it's it's uh it's her basically trying to trying to force the university's hand uh she's forcing them to acknowledge uh something that they would very much rather keep hidden uh you know and 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 she's she's going to force their hand and force them to reconcile with with that history whether they wanted to or not and i like how while that is going on sort of uh as an aside to that or maybe running parallel to that uh, we're introduced to another character named Ernie Allison, who is a white sheriff's deputy, and we see him coming upon another character named William Dean Cawthorn, who is this kind of uh, interesting fellow. He's got this swastika tattoo uh, on his body, uh, and Ernie finds him sort of sleeping in the back of a car. He's got clown clan robes, a gun, but more importantly, he's got a list of contacts uh, that includes the local chief of police. Um, who we eventually find out go, goes missing as a result of that. And you write something um, that I really think kind of catapults the story forward after uh, Toya kind of does, does that graffiti vandalism of that monument that you're talking about or that memorial we're talking about. You write, the world was surely split in two, but discerning who stood on what sides was not black and white. It was gray, and gray was the scarier color because so often you couldn't pin it down. And I feel like really from, from that moment, from, from that, and then we find out the introduction here of uh, William Cawthorn, things do get gray in a hurry. That There's a lot going on in this town, both overtly and kind of kind of below the surface. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the, kind of this the, the, this subtle sort of slow burning tension that, that is building? And it ultimately leads to two really startling acts of violence uh, that, that Ernie and uh, Toya have to deal with, but sort of building that sort of slow, slow burn of, of tension and, and, and the, the violence that's to come, how, how you set that up and how you kind of ran that parallel with, uh, Toya's main story. Yeah. So, you know, this novel is very different in the sense of, of how long it took me to write it. Uh, you know, I think about a novel like where all light tends to go. I wrote the first draft of that novel in a month and a half. Um, this novel took me 10 years. Uh, you know, the very first scenes that I ever wrote, uh, I wrote a decade ago. Uh, and the very first thing that I wrote was what would become the second chapter. And it, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it is the story of, of William Dean Cawthorn. And, um, what happened was at the time I was, you know, I spent every morning, uh, at a firehouse sitting with these three old men drinking coffee. And one of them was someone who had been in, uh, you know, the sheriff's office for his entire career. And there was this person who I'd seen walking through downtown Silva for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I, something was off about him. And, uh, I wound up asking this, this person one day, you know, what his story was. And I, you know, he told me this story of them finding him sleeping in his car uh, and when they pull him out and start questioning him uh, and they search the car, you know, he had a he had a contact list for local clan members in the car. And, and the thing that I'll never forget is him saying it was people I'd known my whole life. He said it was people I went to school with, people I'd gone to church with, uh, you know, people we'd had cakewalks for, people who I'd helped coach Little League, uh, you know, and and uh, it was as a writer, uh, that's gold. Like, like, you know, that type of story is gold 
which is to say that you you've got this outsider who's shown up in a place uh you've got this this uh thing suddenly being exposed where you're learning all of these new things about a community uh and and so the minute he told me that i i went home and i wrote that scene you know i fictionalized that scene and and uh, you know that would become become uh william dean Cawthorn. but but you know I th- yeah i think I think what you're getting at is, is kind of the overall theme of this novel, which was uh, I wanted to write a whodunit where I didn't really care if we ever discovered uh, who had committed the crime, uh, but where the great illumination was, was more about self-discovery and more about learning things uh, about a community that you thought you had known. Uh, you know, learning things about the people that you trusted, uh, the people that you loved. Uh, and, and so that was really kind of the, the major theme of that novel, uh, you know, and that, that's where the title comes from. Uh, you know, because I think the truth is that's some of the some of the hardest things for us to deal with, uh, especially when we're dealing with issues like this novel is. So when we're dealing with issues of white supremacy, uh, you know, if we're dealing with issues of misogyny or, or xenophobia, you know, all of these these heavy uh, these heavy ideas that are rooted in hatred, uh, you know. But when we're dealing with these types of subjects, I think one of the hardest things is is uh, hearing someone that you love uh, say something that that perpetuates these ideas. You know, uh, it's it, and and it happens to all of us. Uh, you know, it happens to all of us, and and so for me, that was kind of one of the goals of the novel was was you know to to force these characters into these difficult conversations where they were going to learn things about each other uh, that they hadn't known before the story started. And I, I think you have a character that really embodies that, uh, that that theme and that idea, and that's Sheriff Jones Coggins, who kind of uh, is introduced a little bit later on. He's sort of the, the, the this older kind of aging sheriff who's who's been in this town for a long time. Um, I think he's described as someone who uh, doesn't have a racist bone in his body, but on the flip side of that, he is also sort of defending that 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 Silva Sam monument from from existing and and being able to be there in the town center with uh, without being a uh, uh, defamed and so uh, you know he's got this he's got kind of this duality that he occupies you know he 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 on the one hand doesn't seem to to really like you know or support racism but at the same time he's not really willing to. Uh, you know, denounce or really uh, make an outcry about the, the the damage of 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 the monument and defend sort of its its right to exist. Um, and, and we learned that Coggins for years and years had been friends with Toya's grandfather, and then Toya's grandmother Vess, who's a wonderful character, a wonderful female character in this story. That they have this conversation, and he kind of tells her kind of his feelings and thoughts on it, and she basically says that. You know, the, the racism in general, but the racism that's going on there is is similar to a snake in a box. And we kind of see that image of snakes popping up over and over again. Can you talk a little bit about about that image and, and that idea of, of, of a snake in a box being sort of the uh, the, the metaphor for the, the racism, uh, not only that it exists in, in this story, but maybe uh, 
in communities at large. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, uh, you know, Coggins is somebody who who very much self-described. Uh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Uh, of course, we know that that, you know, that's not exactly right. Uh, and, and one of the ways that that plays out, uh, you know, I really wanted to look at white supremacy kind of like I was taking apart an onion. Uh, and the truth is that the overt, uh, you know, you think about a character like William Dean Cawthorn, who's this very overt racist, uh, this Klansman, this person who says everything aloud. Uh, he's the papery thin bullshit that's very easy to just wipe off the outside of that onion. Uh, the heart of that onion is is something that that is a lot more subtle than that, uh, you know. And and so when Vess is is trying to explain to him, uh, you know, what racism looks like, you know, in her day to day life, she tells a story of of her daughter uh, Dana when she was a child. Uh, and how Dana was always getting into trouble and just just doing things wild and this and that. But Vess comes in the house one day and she sees a she sees a shoebox on the on the kitchen counter, uh, and she knows her daughter's put it there. And she yells for her daughter to come in. Her daughter doesn't come, so Vess goes over there and opens the box. And when she opens the box, there's a snake in it. Uh, and Vess kind of tells this this playful comical story of you know. Uh, discovering this snake and running out of the house, almost knocking the door off. Um, but she tells this story in order to use it as a metaphor to say that the snake was in the box, whether I opened it or not. Um, and, and I think that's the way that, that, you know, white supremacy plays out in this country. Uh, you know, it's, it's not always the overt, uh, you know, you, you have an event like someone walking into a Dollar General with swastikas drawn on his, on an AR-15 and gunning down uh, multiple black people in the way that we saw happen a couple of days ago. You have these very overt acts of racism. Uh, but, the, but the truth is that so much of it is, is uh, and even the more dangerous aspects of it, are, are happening quietly. They're under the surface. They're ingrained in every system of power that exists in this country. Uh, you know, I, I've said for a long time that I think that this country was founded upon and perpetuated by white supremacy. Um, there is not a system of power that exists in this country uh, where that is not the governing principle. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, when we're, when we're having these conversations, uh, it's, we only ever pay attention to the overt, uh, and seldom do, do we talk about, you know, the more subtle things like gerrymandering or like voter suppression or like, uh, the fact that right now we're operating at a higher wage gap between black and white workers than has existed since 1970, you know, since before I was born. Um, and so and so when Vess is, is describing that, I think that's what she's getting at. You know, for, for Coggins, for Coggins, racism only exists when it's this overt thing. Uh, and what Vess is trying to show him is, no, it, it's, it's not like that. Uh, it's the subtlety. 
It's, it's the things that are happening quietly. Uh, and those are all the things that she knows very well uh, and that he has never had to pay attention to. Very, very well said. And some of that information you, you were sharing about the about the wage disparities and all of that, you know, I've heard some people describe kind of this period in our history as almost another Gilded Age. Um, and if you think about big tech and you think about, you know, wealth and power consolidated into just a handful of people like it was in the in, in you know, the 1880s, the 1890s after the the end of Reconstruction. Do, do you feel like that as as a writer, as an Appalachian, that that in some ways, you know, we have some of these uh, these 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 racism issues, but we also have sort of this this gilded age uh, behavior on top of that. Do you feel that way that that maybe we're we're in that? in that period and that that because we are maybe in the second gilded age that's affecting some of those other issues you were talking about uh i think i think that maybe it is uh you know it's fuel on the fire um you know i i, I think that it's most most assuredly kind of uh you know elevating those issues maybe in ways that that uh wouldn't wouldn't exist otherwise um, but the truth is that is that all of the things that I'm talking about in this novel are nothing new. Uh, you know, a lot of people keep wanting to read this novel as a post-2020 novel. Uh, and, and I guess you do have to read it as that. But that was not how it was written. Uh, the book was primarily written before uh, 2020. Um, you know, and and. For me, the reason the book was was written um, was because these are things that just keep happening over and over and over again. It's the it's the cyclical nature of it. Um, you know, I feel like it, to not be paying attention to these things, you would have to be walking through this world uh, with your fingers in your ears and your eyes closed. You know, uh, and and it's it's. It's not even a, a modern phenomenon as in my lifetime or as in the past hundred years. These are things that were very much, uh, you know, fundamentally worked into this country's founding. Uh, and, and, and so for me, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I think we're at a, we're at a time where, where especially wealth gaps are happening at, at greater and greater, uh, you know, deficits because of, because of things like technology. Uh, but that, that's not, you know, um, the bigger picture for me is, is a system of white supremacy. Uh, that's the bigger issue for me. Uh, that's the thing, um, you know, that is, that is, governing every aspect of, of what's happening in this country. You know, there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me now who are thinking about uh, these things and publishing about these things. And a whole lot of them uh, don't believe that you'll ever be able to break that system down until you completely dismantle American capitalism. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know that I full, I, I don't know that I disagree with that. Uh, because because these issues are so deeply ingrained within that system that that yeah that in some ways I think you have to scrap it and start over uh, you know because there is no correcting it. Uh, it, it you know there comes a there comes a point in time 
when you can't fix the house, you just have to tear the house down and start over. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I feel like not only are we there, we've been there for a very, very long time. We're chatting with author David Joy here on this episode of Now Appalachia. He is the author of the brand new book, Those We Thought We Knew. It's his it's his latest book. And if you're uh, just tuning into the conversation or if you've been following uh, all along, it, it's a gorgeous narrative that explores how racism, how pride, how lack of uh, communication destroys relationships and communities. We'll, we'll come back to the book uh, uh, in just a second, David, because I want to ask you about the last chapter, which I really think is is so wonderful and so poignant in so many ways. But I did a little research, and I wanted to ask your your thoughts on this. So we have been we've we've done over one hundred episodes of the podcast here on Now Appalachia, and so I was going back and and preparing for this interview, and we've had thirty one authors in uh, going on almost seven years that have either mentioned you or referenced you as someone who they admire or someone whose work they come back to when they need inspiration or they need motivation or they need um, a way to, you know, create a character in a fresh way or to have a plot point that's a little different from something that they've done. When you hear something like that, so that's about a 31% uh, clip of our authors, if I'm doing the math correctly, which is not my skill set, but about 31% of uh, of authors that have said that your work influences them or inspires them in some way. What is your reaction to that when you hear things like that? When you set out to write, did you ever imagine that that would be that would be something that would factor into the equation of, of your career as a writer. What are your thoughts on when you hear something like that? Uh, I mean, I think it's, is it, you know, super, super flattering, uh, you know, uh, and the only thing I have to compare it to are the authors who do that for me, you know, and there are lots of them. Uh, you know, I, I think about all of those major influences for me, uh, you know, especially early, uh, you know, Larry Brown, William Gay, you know, uh, Ron Rash, Daniel Woodrell, uh, you know, and I, I just return to them over and over and over. Um, you know, the writer who, like, if I could, if I could pay a thousand dollars right now to have another book from them, uh, and they're still actively writing, uh, you know, is Donald Ray Pollock. Like, God, I want another Donald Ray Pollock book. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, but there are all of these writers, you know, uh, you know, who influenced me with it, with this novel, you know, I just kept reading Crystal Wilkinson. Uh, I just kept reading, uh, Randall Keenan. I, I just kept reading, uh, Ernest Gaines. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I just reading Natalie Basil, uh, Lisa Cross Smith, you know, all of these writers, uh, you know, and I think at the end of the day, um, if you're a writer, if you're a real writer, then you're a reader first, uh, you know, uh, because you're not, you're never going to be able to do anything on the page. Uh, there are things that you can do on the page naturally, but when, when, when craft is honed, uh, you know, when, when, when things are, are, are really working on the page, uh, it's not happening by accident. You know, it's things that you've picked up from somewhere else. Uh, so, so if I can be that for someone else, I think that's a really flattering thing, uh, for me. Um, 
but at the same time, I wholly understand what they're saying because there are so many writers who are doing that, you know, for me as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't I didn't mean to embarrass you or say that to embarrass you, but I, I just I, I wanted to go back because I feel like I've had we've interviewed so many authors on the program and so many of them have mentioned your name just either as a direct answer to a question or just kind of in conversation. You know, they'll they'll allude to you or something that they read in one of your books. So uh, I wanted to share that with you, uh, that, that you do have a lot of fellow writers out there that are uh, are, are are leaning on you and looking to you for, for inspiration. Uh, and speaking of that, for folks that wanted to know and learn a little bit more about you, you were featured uh, on a PBS series called Southern Storytellers here recently. And uh, they profiled you along with poet Jericho Brown, novelist Jesmyn Ward, uh, songwriter Jason Isbell was also featured in that series. What was that experience like? H how did you find out you had been selected? And what was that like sort of having, a, you know, a, a camera crew and a producer and, and folks kind of following you around to learn not just about you, you as a writer, but about you as a person? What was that experience like? Yes, yeah, so, you know. I was one of the very first people that they ever contacted uh, for that. You know, Craig Renault contacted me, kind of told me the gist of, of what he was wanting to do. And that was something that changed over time. Uh, so when, when Craig originally came to me, he said, I want you to tell me the story of the place you write about. And I said, uh, that's not my story to tell. I said, but let me introduce you to the people whose it is. And so I took him around, uh, all in all, I would say we filmed for about two weeks, two or three weeks, uh, over about a three year period. And I took him to all of these, these different people and we, and we sat there and we talked with them because I wanted to try to tell a complicated story about Jackson County, North Carolina, uh, as time goes on, I think that show became something else, uh, you know, and Craig told me afterward, he said, the stuff we filmed with you was my, was what my original vision was, uh, you know, but as time went on, I think the story, you know, the, the show became more about just uh, storytelling uh, and, and trying to, to get at, you know, how different types of storytellers operate. Uh, and, and, and so it was really interesting to see, you know, to have experienced it and then to see what it became, uh, you know, and, and, and I think in a lot of ways it became something different. Um, but, but you also know from watching it, you can see that because I'm the only person on that show who is actively taking him to other people. Uh, you know, I, everyone else, it's, it's just like, you know, when they talk with Billy Bob Thornton, they only talk with Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, you know, when they talk to Jericho Brown, they only talk to Jericho Brown versus the stuff that you see with me, you know, I'm taking him to sit with a church congregation. Uh, I'm taking him to, uh, talk with my best friend, Raymond Bunn, who had, had a gun shop, uh, which is where I'm sitting right now, <laughs> you know, uh, but <laughs> I was kind of ushering him around because I, I wanted to try to uh, if the, if the intent was to tell the story of the place that I write about, which is Jackson County, North Carolina, uh, then I needed to introduce him to all of the voices that make this place what it is. Yeah. Excellent. It, it's a terrific series and folks, 
uh, that have not seen that can do that and find it by just going to PBS's website uh, and selecting Southern Storytellers, and they can find a clip of that interview. And our guest here on Now Appalachia is author David Joy. He's the author of the brand new novel, Those We Thought We Knew. And uh, David, we're, we're running short on time, but I did want to ask you about this la the last chapter, because I think everything that you've so eloquently talked about with connections to the novel and sort of the larger thematic connections to, to society and, and race and, and what's going on in our country, both past and present, really gets kind of um, uh, portrayed extremely well uh, in that final chapter, because I feel like that final chapter, the last chapter of your book is really just a, a reflection of not just the community that you write about in this book, but the lives of the people that are in it, of this notion of homes that we build and what constitutes sort of quote unquote home. And, and I'm just going to read a, a quote that I love. It's one of my favorite quotes from that chapter. And I think uh, this would be a good way to close out our discussion. And you can illuminate on this in terms of uh, of, of of what it means and what it means to you, because I just felt like if you had to sum up the book uh, in a sentence or two, this might be a good way to do it. You write in that last chapter, houses were vessels of the lives lived in them. In the case of Vest Jones, hers had been filled with love and laughter and dancing and song and food and fighting and sadness and grieving and all of those threads that make up who and what we become. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that... Um... This last chapter of this novel, in a in a lot of ways, mirrors the last chapter of, of when these mountains burn, uh, which you know, with when these mountains burn, it was the character of, of Raymond Mathis, uh, and in this, it's the character of Bess Jones, and I think they're both, um, you know, they're both operating from very similar mindsets, which is is that uh, they belong to communities that are being erased uh, for a whole lot of different reasons, whether that be gentrification, uh, whether that be just cultural shifts, uh, whether that be aging uh, and dying out, uh, you know, and in the case of Vest, that's very much it is, is Vest is kind of the last of a community that's almost gone. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I think, in some ways, that last chapter uh, is is kind of a lamentation. Uh, but th there is a song that's mentioned earlier in that book, uh, and it's a song that Vess and her granddaughter danced to in the garden. Uh, and it's Nina Simone's "Ain't Got No, I Got Life." And and if you know that song, you know that it sort of starts as this slow lamentation of all the things that she does not have uh and then there comes a moment when the song makes a turn uh and it becomes a celebration of all the things that she does have uh and i wanted to model the last chapter of this novel after that song uh and and so you know the way that this book ends is is with this woman uh, looking back on on all of the things that she's lost and that she's losing. Uh, and then at the same time, it becomes this celebration of all the things that she's had and that she has. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, for me, it was just kind of a, it was kind of a poetic way to try to exit the stage, you know, which I think is the hardest part of a novel. Uh, you know, if the work of the novel is, is you know, 
to pull this magic trick where you make the Statue of Liberty disappear, uh, one of the hardest parts of it is is getting off of the stage gracefully. Uh, you know, and and uh, and and so for me, I think that was just a a way that felt felt like a the right way to end it. So as we finish up with you today, David, if anyone wants to uh, stay in contact with you to find out what you're up to and uh, not just what you're doing writing wise, but but what you're doing down there in the woods of uh, Silva, North Carolina, what you're what, what you're foraging, what you're hunting, what you're fishing, what you're uh, what you're up to uh, in your private life. And in addition to what you're doing uh, uh, as a writer, uh, how can they stay in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of those we thought we knew? Yeah. Uh, so, so as far as getting the copies, you can, you can buy copies of my books anywhere that books are sold. Uh, I'm always going to suggest that you go and support your local independent bookseller. If that's something that you don't know who your local independently owned bookstore is, then go to indiebound.org uh, and type in your zip code and they'll tell you who your independently owned bookstore is and then go there and meet those people because they're your neighbors. Uh, and I would much rather you be supporting uh, your neighbors than I would, you know, some massive uh, online faceless presence. Um, but then as far as following me, uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's probably my favorite uh, social media. And, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy it. Uh, but I'm on Twitter often. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm either saying something funny or I'm screaming at the top of my lungs about something that, that really makes me mad, which is, I guess, what the purpose of Twitter is. Uh, <laughs> on there. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Facebook, I don't use very often outside of just, you know, book news. Uh, so if that's the only reason you want to follow me is, is just to know when a new book is coming out or just to know when I might be on book tour. Uh, that's a really good place to do that. Uh, I don't have a website. Uh, I, I will probably try to fix that at some point in time. Uh, I'm not very technologically, uh, you know, equipped. I'm, I, that's that. That's just not how my brain works. Uh, and so for a long time, I had I had somebody who helped me build a website and helped me maintain a website. Uh, and unfortunately, he passed away. And, and since then, I haven't had a website. Uh, but I probably will try to get a website back up and going. But until then, you know, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and Facebook. The title of the book is called Those We Thought We Knew. Our guest has been uh, award-winning author David Joy. He is not only the author of this book, but he's the author of several other award-winning novels, including When These Mountains Burn, The Line That Held Us, The Weight of This World, and Where All Light Tends to Go. And if you haven't discovered David yet, there's no better time to do so than the present. You can start with this book and work your way back or start at the beginning and work your way up. Uh, David, this is a terrific new novel. And as you mentioned, I know it took you a long time to write this, and I think it was uh, well worth the effort. It's just a terrific story that gives us not only a lot to think about in terms of uh, everything going on within the pages itself, but uh, more thematically and, and a stronger connection to our society and giving us some things to think about, about about where we are as a people and how we connect and relate with one another. So congratulations on this uh, on this brand new book. It's outstanding. And uh, thanks so much for the conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We want to take a moment as we finish up this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special thank you to our executive producer. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes 
all of these podcast episodes possible every time that we bring them to you, not only for Now Appalachia, but for all the podcasts that you are following and listening to here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. So, Pam, thank you for what you do and all of your efforts. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that will do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.